the best way to partner amongst players in the health system is to understand first, you know, what are the things that really drive the business and the opportunity for your partner. ACA is really about not transformation, but around people and around trying to provide more coverage. I said the only people that will really force a transformation of the healthcare system will be consumers themselves. Healthcare is the most personal of all service businesses. Um, and so therefore the power of relationship is extraordinary. And within the healthcare system, the power of relationships is extraordinary to get things done. Keith Pitts is the operating advisor for Clayton, Dubelier and Rice, and previously was the vice chairman of Tenant Healthcare Corporation and Vanguard Health Systems. We sat down with Keith to explore the progression of healthcare from the 90s to today. Things move, they don't move in a revolutionary way, they move in an evolutionary way, particularly as big as the health system here is. And Keith also provides insights into where healthcare is heading next. He predicts a trend towards at-home and virtual care and he also expects the government to continue leading the charge towards value-based care models. There was sort of a new investment and renewed investment around value-based care, particularly on the Medicare Advantage side. Keith speaks to the power and importance of relationships to achieve both healthcare as well as personal career goals. Never burn a bridge in the business when you can help it is really a, a you know, number one piece of advice for emerging leaders. Let's hear about the progression of healthcare and his career journey from Keith Pitts. Well, good morning, Keith, and welcome. Thanks, good to see you, Gary. We're pleased to have you at this microphone. This show is about leadership and how leaders pursue excellence. You've been a remarkably successful leader throughout your career, which we'll dig into in a moment. You had a unique position in the sense that you'd spent a lot of time with not-for-profit hospitals in your consulting days, and then here you were on the investor-owned side. So what did you see as the major opportunities that an investor-owned hospital system like Vanguard had with these not-for-profit systems? Well, a lot of times, you know, when health systems start to get into decline, a lot of times there are management issues. There's a lot of turnover. They get in turnaround folks who really are looking for a very short-term solution. And they keep, I have a perennial problem recruiting the right leadership and talent, which ultimately means they have a governance problem at the end of the day, because the boards don't really understand and haven't really committed to finding the right capital. They get tired and they get weary and they want a solution. And if we can build the trust with them in a lot of cases, then we can become the solution. That was how we looked at that. And it's all over the map when that happens. But and then there's sometimes once you're in a market, you know, there just may be a compelling strategic reason why the organization should be in the same company. That happens after you enter a market. But a lot of times when we picked up entire systems, it was because of kind of that pattern over time. Right. With some rare exceptions. And there were those that, like in Detroit, probably the most memorable, the last big system into Vanguard. But the board there was very enlightened, but they had done a good job turning themselves around and staying in the game with no capital. And so they needed a significant amount of investment in facilities and strategic areas and things like that. And they really didn't have the capital access. And I think they actually spent a good bit of time going to all the not-for-profits and the not-for-profits didn't want to do anything with them. So then they flipped to talking to the investor owned. And that's how we got into there and started the dialogue with them. 
So why don't we turn to your view of the health system as a whole, since you're a student of, of the trends and the relationships in the health system. You've always been that way, one of the more one of the best thinkers around. So there's a set of questions there, Keith. One of them is how have the risks for health systems changed over the last 20 or 30 years? Well, that's a good question. Uh, 20 or 30 years has been interesting. So if you look at the fall of the HMOs at the end of the 90s, that really changed the course for a lot of things. As you imagine, payers, everything went back to PPO. Pricing went way up. The regional health systems got real strength. Payers started doing very well. Physicians got the short shift, on, on, in my view, over the last 20-something years. And then they started to, over time, started to run into more employment models with health systems and those changes. And I wasn't used to that. I was just used to a different kind of model over time. But we shifted and changed like we needed to. But I think the health system went through this time where there really wasn't any, you know, it was a volume base and a pricing based system for a long time. And it's interesting, in 2011 or 20, maybe it was 2010 or 11, I did a conference and everybody felt like the AA was transform healthcare. And I said, it was really, it's really about not transformation, but around people and around trying to provide more coverage. I said, the only people that will really force a transformation of the healthcare system will be consumers themselves once they really take charge. And I think everybody looked at me like I was nuts because the AC was about to come out and everybody's going to look at all this money coming in. And honestly, when you look back, the people that did the best were people that got new coverage, but some of those couldn't really afford their out-of-pockets. And then the other people that did really well were the payers during ACA. I think everybody underestimated the real win, who was going to be the real winner in the ACA. And as you know, the health systems gave up money for the additional coverage, but then a lot of the states didn't expand Medicaid. Then a lot of things happened that weren't anticipated at the time. So, yeah, it's a, it was very interesting. So it's changed a lot, but then COVID came along. And right when I got out of the health system business, when I was moving to my next chapter, then all of a sudden, what made me be one of the, was truly a sentinel event in the history of health system, COVID happened. And I think that some things are, we're starting to see, you know, the lingering side of that, where, first of all, value-based care has been picking up a lot. At the same time, there was a new investment and renewed investment around value-based care, particularly on the Medicare Advantage side by a lot of folks, and it was starting to build up. But now you're starting to see a lot of pressure back for different solutions. Consumers now are willing to accept virtual health care versus necessarily being in person. And then, of course, the, we're seeing, a, obviously, a, an accelerating rise in value-based care and even some pressure and opportunity to go back into it on the commercial side. As you know, the only place, most major place in the country where any groups of providers have been at commercial risk has really been in California, and it's been that way for years. So when the health systems dropped out of the risk game at the end of the 90s, the innovative doctor groups picked it up and said, we can take the ball and do this, and they stayed in the business. So that's why you have the healthcare partners of the world and the monarchs of the world and the heritages of the world. And they're they, in various forms of ownership, they're all still in business, still successful today. So, Keith, the federal government is the largest payer and regulator of care. You made the point that through what we would call Medicare Advantage, they're getting into the value business. What do you think is going to happen for the rest of this decade in terms of the government role? Are they going to continue to grow and continue to influence care? Where does that leave the private sector? 
But I think the government is in the lead of that. I don't really see that changing, honestly. And when you think about the commercial payers, the large guys, when they think about their book of business and opportunity, that's the biggest growth area they've got because the traditional commercial is, looks like a flat to down business over the next 10 years. And that's a very high kager. You have markets in this country where you have more migration of folks that are living, that are moving there at around the Medicare age that have well into double digit expected growth in the MA book, in the Medicare Advantage book. When you think about that, it's that's going to be a real shift in the change. And so it's changing, I think, the landscape for doctors and the opportunity for them, because for them, that becomes the potentially best business they have. And for the hospitals, the commercial business has always been the best business because of chronic underpayment. And so it's uh, by the government side on that. So therefore, on the commercial side, you know, that's a big shift. I think that's forging new relationships for everybody to understand. I think the best way to partner uh, amongst players in the health system is to understand first, what are the things that really drive the business and the opportunity for your partner? How does that differ from what drives it for you? And where can you find things in between that can create win for both of you? And it's a really good outcome for patients. So it's really headed in that direction, in my view. If we go to more value-based care, are the operating margins destined to be low single digits and that's it? I think they're going to have to listen. Cost is going to be the game right now because the elasticity and revenue is other than market share is harder. It's a harder game. I think that when I think about what they're going to have to look at, I think I think they can have better margins. I think they're going to have to be really smart in picking out what they do and how they do it. And not everybody can be everything to everybody. I think that's another issue being really focused and strategic on what you can do best and what you can. And then I think Finding a way to work with your partners to make whatever happens inside the hospital as efficient as possible, and that's your physicians, because, you know, in effect, a really well, a a really good relationship between an at-risk physician group and a hospital can generate a really efficient, uh, you know, a better margin on what I'll call business that most folks don't think is very high margin business because it's more efficient. They're not wasting resources in the hospital. They're not leaving patients for extra days that don't need to be there. They're putting them into the right setting of care because they're thinking about, because they're, they're longitudinally responsible for those patients all year long, every year. It's not like a, a temporary or a transactional view. If you take a longitudinal view on it, then they can become very efficient. So I think it's going to require some sort of changing of mindsets to get those margins up. Right. The question is, will the government's attempt to get at costs through requiring hospitals to publish their rates, insurance company to publish their rates, is that going to do any good? I don't know. So maybe let me ask you a hypothetical question. So you have hospital A and hospital B is the kingpin in the market and hospital A. In some markets in this country, there could be a three or 400% difference in a commercial payment for those two. There's not much difference in Medicare other than extra payments like DISH and IME, GME, which have a legitimate basis to them. Honestly, what does that mean? Do you say, I don't want to go now to hospital B. I don't want to go to the, the kingpin anymore. I want to go to these guys because they're cheaper. But does the plan design that you have for your plan really make it that much cheaper? And so I don't know what happens. Does the variation compress? And so do the have-nots become better haves? But then what happens to the haves today if they go down? That's really a hard time. It's really hard to give up price and revenue for those guys. So I'm not optimistic that that's going to be transformational in itself. But don't count the employers out. Because that information may become, they've had a little bit of that information from their carriers, but not 
like that. And, that's, and then maybe they redesigned, and a lot of them are not happy with the kind of health care their employees are getting. And right. the thing that we don't really know about that is what's the workforce going to look like? And what are the, what's the employment level going to look like? And, the, and what's the competition for talent going to look like? Because it's starting, it's looking like it's becoming an issue for a lot of organizations. Yeah. What about this trend where the insurance companies are acquiring doctors, basically, or hiring doctors? What's the natural extension of that? Is that going to continue over time or will that flatten out? What's your feel about that, Keith? The leader, the market leader out there is so far ahead. I think everybody will be in some form through partnership, part of partial ownership or full ownership try to be in the doctor business over the next several years. And so if the value proposition for the insurance, the administrative margin, the margins on the insurance business, even on the ASO side, start to decline, they have a business model, and particularly for the government business and finding people that will take those patients and manage those patients. I think we're going to see more of that. And the question will be what alternative models are out there for physicians to stay in some form of an independent practice. Keith, this has been a terrific interview, as expected. I have two leadership questions to wrap up. One of them is, we've been through the COVID, we're not through the COVID crisis yet, but we've certainly operated in the last couple of years in that. You've been through other crises in your careers. What are the main leadership characteristics that you like to see for a leader during a crisis? Well, the first thing is never be a, never take a victim mentality when you're leading other people, you know, take a mentality that this is what was, this was the hand that was dealt to us. And, and let's work together to find the greatest solution and the best outcomes for the organization with whatever hand was dealt with us. We can't, whether, and some of that may be, you know, you're lobbying for something that could always be that, but you can't be, you, you can't have a victim mentality and be a leader during a crisis. It just doesn't work. The other thing is to stay calm you're going to make you're going to have to make decisions in a crisis that hurt you know whether it's initiatives that you really believed in you can't do anymore you can't fund people that you know you love that you work for you that are great and they're exceptional talent but you can't afford anymore to run the business and i could go down a whole list of things you got to move you have to make the right decisions move on and make sure that you're constantly reassuring those that are remaining that when you make those kind of decisions that how valuable they are and keeping the team together. It's just a, it was a hard time to go through crises and you've got to make a lot of difficult decisions. That's a time when leaders really do shine yep. is during that time because you have to really be pretty selfless in those times because you don't really have time and opportunity to be selfish because if you are, someone else will come in and fix the company you won't. Final question, Keith, since we have up-and-coming leaders involved in our audience here, what advice do you have for an up-and-coming healthcare leader? A couple of things. One is, if you remember, healthcare is the most personal of all service businesses, and so therefore, the power of relationship is extraordinary. And within the healthcare system, the power of relationships is extraordinary to get things done, whether it's with other organizations, physicians, people in different sectors. So I think the never burn a bridge, you've heard that from me before, Gary, but the never burn a bridge in the business when you can help it is really a number one piece of advice for emerging leaders. I'm hoping the next set of leaders, we, we didn't get it completely figured out in the last 20 or 30 years. I thought we'd get more of it figured out, but maybe the next set of leaders are going to figure this out, make it a better system. 
I agree. We didn't do as well as we thought we would in the last 20, 30 years, but we did some good, Keith, I think. Oh, we did. Yeah, we absolutely did some good. I just think now when you think about the individual and how complex the system is to access sometimes, I think we, we have to take a real view of an inclusive view of healthcare, find ways to make the system less complex, less complex and more accessible. Keith, thanks so much. This is just terrific. Appreciate your time and you're still the brightest guy around. So our pleasure. Thanks, Gary. Nice to see you as always. 